A show. Hello, and welcome to Suite 212, a show that looks at the arts in their social, cultural, political, and historical contexts here on Resonance 104.4 FM. Still London's boldest and bravest radio station after 20 years on the airwaves, and increasingly the fibre optics, or whoever else you're receiving these words. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and today we're live in the studio to discuss the life and legacy of John Calder, publisher of some of the greatest avant-garde literature of the 20th century, and a champion of free speech, who sadly died in August of this year, at the fine old age of 91. Joining me today is Alex Kovacs. Alex has published one novel, The Currency of Paper, via Dorky Archive Press in 2013, which I described in the New Statesman at the time as a novel of ideas that incorporates a range of perspectives on the nature of work and the possibilities of art with considerable subtlety, intellectual ambition and wit. He's currently finishing a second novel as part of a PhD at the University of Kent. Occasionally, he organises and hosts an avant-garde performance event called The Dismantled Cabaret. Between 2008 and 2010, he worked for Alma Books, who were responsible for placing him inside the bookshop that John Calder had opened on The Cut in Waterloo in 2002. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, I wondered if you'd like to just start off by maybe telling our listeners a little bit about your, your time working for the Calder Bookshop, where, where John Calder himself was frequently present. So um, it was kind of a dream job, um, which I, I never, I just sort of fell into it really. Um, uh, but it was it was wonderful. The bookshop kind of felt haunted by the ghost of Samuel Beckett, really, which, um, yeah, John was, was obsessed with Beckett. He thought he was the, the greatest writer of the 20th century. And in his bookshop, he surrounded himself by actors who loved Beckett and who would come in every Thursday to perform readings of different texts. Um, and many of these texts were uh, from the ancient past. They weren't just modernist texts. Um, so they might read Ovid or Dante um, or something from the 19th century, Jane Austen, whatever it was. Um, but yes, these, these readings range throughout the history of literature. And um, that, was, that was John Calder's perspective as well. What did uh, what did Calder used to use to clean his glasses? <laughs> well, you know the answer to that because I told you in the cafe. Yes, no, it's a, it's a nice little anecdote. He used to he used to use red wine to clean his glass. The, the blood of Christ. I think you know when you've reached that age and published that much. I think you're perfectly entitled to do that. I um I met the French experimental poet Henri uh, Henri Chopin a few years before he died in his mid eighties, and he he just lived off red wine. So you know. I think that's great. I mean, I was lucky enough to meet Calder uh, and somebody from the Godot Company, who you mentioned, one of his actors, when I did uh, a book launch for my monograph on Dorky Archive Press about the English experimental author Rainer Heppenstall, who we've discussed on a previous episode of Sweet 212. Um, and I spent the evening with Calder and with Tony and with Rainer Heppenstall's daughter listening to anecdotes about Calder playing tennis with Samuel Beckett, of course, Beckett is the only Nobel Prize for Literature winner, winner to be listed in the Wisden Cricket Almanac, and he was, you know, a fairly accomplished sportsman. But I'm not sure who won. Um, 
I'm actually going to let Alessandro Galenzi, the founder of Alma Books, who took over Calder's List in 2012, I'm going to let him provide an overview of Calder's personal life. This is taken from the obituary that Alessandro published in The Guardian on the 21st of August 2018. He says, John Calder's autobiography, Pursuit, published in 2001, is a 350,000 word roller coaster, in parts reminiscent of the memoirs of Lorenzo de Ponte or Casanova with tales of when Calder played tennis with Rita Hayworth, or met Arthur Miller and Marilyn Monroe at the Savoy Hotel, or drove the Russian writer Yulian Semyonov around LA with a broken wrist and concussion. John was born in Montreal in 1927 to a Scottish father, James Calder, whose family wealth derived from brewing and timber businesses, and a French-Canadian mother, Lucienne Wilson, whose family had made their fortune in banking. Calder was educated first at Gilling Castle, North Yorkshire, the prep, prep school for Ambleforth, and then at various colleges in Montreal, and he completed his business studies degree at Zurich University in 1949. Earlier that year, he'd married the American ast- actress Christian Myling. They had a daughter, Jamie, in 1954, but they divorced before Calder married Bettina Jonic in 1961. They also had a daughter before separating in 1975, His third wife was Sheila Colvin, who he married in 2011. Galenzi writes that, as the scion of two prominent moneyed families, Calder was able to enjoy for a while a life of lavish hotels and holidays in the Swiss Alps and the Côte d'Azur. But the pressure of being heir to a large part of the family estate meant that he soon had to enter the business. He was conscripted into his great uncle's thriving international timber firm, Calder's Limited, for which his father had also worked. But his real passions were literature and music, especially the opera. So for a few years, he juggled this career and the fledgling John Calder Publishers, which he founded towards the end of 1949. So I'm going to provide a quick overview of what he did with with this first publishing house, John Calder Publishers. Um, For almost anybody else, this would be an extraordinary life in itself and enough to the basis of a show. But here it's the... um, it's really the starter before the main course. So he began by publishing translations of European classics, uh, Chekhov, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, Goethe, Zola and many others. Um, he was multilingual, he had strong links to Paris in particular, um, and he was travelling between London, Edinburgh and Paris until the end of his life. Um, Calder was quite adept at using political situations, partly out of principle and partly to his uh, his advantage. Um, the McCarthy witch hunts let him publish American authors, um, particularly writing on issues of civil liberty that American publishers were scared to have on their lists at the time. Most, most notably, um, he got Olga Hiss to write about his trial for treason. Um, Olga Hiss, I'm just going to talk about momentarily he was a u.s government official who helped to establish the united nations who was accused of being a soviet spy in 1948 convicted in perjury in connection with this charge two years later he served three and a half years in prison always maintained his innocence indeed the case remains highly contested and certain files have been destroyed uh, but called a published uh, Olga Hiss's book in the court of public opinion in 1957 um, he also published um, some works by um the second baron, Lord Altrincham. 
Now, Altrincham kind of came to prominence by attacking Elizabeth II's style of public speaking soon after the coronation in the early 50s um, as a pain in the neck. Uh, Altrincham wrote a lot more about Elizabeth II's public speaking style and the deference to which it was shown. And uh, predictably, he was attacked by the Daily Mail, the Daily Express, the Spectator and the Prime Minister of Australia. Um, Calder published a book, a compendium of Altrincham's writings on the monarchy, um, but he also moved on to publishing, I think, more hard-hitting things and just criticisms of the way Queen Elizabeth II conducted her uh, her public speech. Um, this is from an interview with Vice magazine in 2009, uh, written by a um, friend of the show, Hugh Nesbitt. And Calder says, in 1958, I published a book called The Question by Henri Allais about the French army in Algiers. I was given a copy of it when I was in Paris, and immediately I thought I should publish it. Jean-Paul Sartre wrote the introduction. It was one of my first bestsellers. It turned around 10,000 copies in a few weeks. Off the bat, that was fairly controversial. The Algerian war had been going on for a long time, and de Gaulle had finally stopped it. That led to books like Gangrene by Lord Altrincham, and made me decide that if you were going to attack colonialism, then you've got to attack them all. Um, Gangrene was a book that exposed atrocities in the British and French colonies uh, and led to the closing of the Hola camps in Kenya. Uh, in March 1959, the, um, the British colonial administration, trying to put down the Mau Mau uprising in Kenya, killed 11 detainees at the camps. Um, and this was one of the things that Altrincham wrote about. Uh, Calder says, The government was afraid of anything that put the British army in a bad light. And I got a notice saying that if I published this book, I'd be tried for treason rather serious. But once a book is out, that's it. It's out. They ended up dropping the case. So Just on the on the point of um, of Calder's uh, political life, I mean, he, he was always firmly on the left. He, he hung out with a lot of Labour MPs um, during the 60s, I think, in particular. He even actually stood as a candidate for the Scottish Liberal Liberal Party in 1970, but only got 9% of the vote. So he kind of abandoned parliamentary politics at that point. But yeah, most, most of his publications were, were literary, they were fiction, or they were plays or poetry sometimes, rather than politics. But he dabbled in that sometimes. Yeah. And I mean, you could look at just the list of Calder's publications specifically related to politics and nonfiction. Uh, and like I like I said earlier, I think that would be more than enough for most publishers. Would have would have you've counted that as an extraordinary career in itself. Uh, but I want to move us on to talk about the the golden age of Calder publications, which kind of begins in the sort of I would say the mid to late fifties. Um, Calder focuses more on publishing what was then obviously contemporary literature. I think there's a strong emphasis on French literature, given his own uh, ties to Paris and to France and the fact that he translated from the French on occasions. Um, but he kind of comes into a publishing scene, a very interesting kind of countercultural or modernist or neo-modernist publishing scene uh, that has several interesting players. You have Grove Press, who've published some of the early Samuel Beckett novels from before the Second World War. We'll come back to Beckett soon. You have New Directions that was set up in the US in 1936 on advice given 
to the publisher James Laughlin by Ezra Pound. Um, they had a series called New Directions in Poetry and Prose, which I think was a big influence on John Calder's New Writers and Writing series. I think we'll come back to that as well. Um, in France, you had uh, Maurice Girodias at Olympia Press. Uh, Girodias's father had run a publisher called Obelisk Books, which had exploited a loophole that allowed English books that were banned in the UK to be published in France. Uh, so he published things like Henry Miller, Anais Nin. Um, Maurice Girodias published Miller's Sexus after the war, uh, and this was too much for the French. There was an obscenity trial that bankrupted him and cost him obelisk so Girodias set up Olympia so they published bits of Samuel Beckett they published John Glasgow who for example completed Aubrey Beardsley's novel Under the Hill uh, Beardsley's kind of decadent fantasy Eckler novel about kind of sexuality they published that and they also published Nabokov's Alita the story of O by Pauline Rayage William Burroughs Naked Lunch uh, all books that were quite sexually explicit and Girodias also published The Scum Manifesto uh, anyone who has seen uh, Mary Harron's film I Shot Andy Warhol will know that Solanus was actually on her way to shoot Girodias originally and couldn't get hold of him so went for Warhol instead in the UK I think the other publisher that was closest to Calder in kind of style and spirit was Peter Owen. Uh, Peter Owen had set up an independent publisher in 1951, having previously worked for The Bodley Head. Uh, he had Muriel Spark as an editor, and he published Paul and Jane Bowles, Shusako Endo, various Spanish authors including Salvador Dali, Yukio Mishima, Anna Kavan, um, André Gide, Jean Cocteau, Colette, Anais Nin. Um, there's also a very interesting extensive Peter Owen list. So that was the kind of context that Calder was coming into. Uh, but the the really transformative thing for Calder Publications, I think, was when he went to see Waiting, a production of Waiting for Godot in London in 1955 um, and was immediately very, very taken with Beckett's dramatic style, uh, spoke to Beckett about how the play came about and Beckett told him that actually it came out of kind of war experiences of just having long, long periods where just nothing happened and they had to fill the time by just sort of talking about everything and nothing. Um, Calder was uh, was really, really taken with, with Beckett, went to meet him in Paris. Uh, Faber beat him to the plays, uh, but Calder managed to get the the rights to Beckett's novels and poetry. And I think Beckett, as you said earlier, was kind of a cornerstone of, of Calder's enterprises for the rest of his life. Yes, yeah, so he, he had uh, the, the copyright to, uh, to Beckett's prose in Britain for many years. Um, and it's sort of remarkable, actually, that uh, a relatively small publisher um, was in that position. Um, normally, someone who's won the Nobel Prize, as Beckett did in 1969, someone as high profile as him would have a larger publisher, really. Um, but, uh, but yeah, for decades, he was, he was the sole publisher of Beckett's prose um, and became very deeply associated with that writer. Um, people would actually turn up to the bookshop when when uh, Beckett was was being discussed and read, um, whereas many of the other readings were were very sparsely attended. But I love readings like that. So we I'm had a small crowd for my Rainer Happen store, but but it's quality, not quantity. Absolutely. Um, I know the Unnameable was was a real favourite of um, of Calder's, and of course the trilogy. You know, it's one of the most extraordinary pieces of kind of twentieth century modernism, and. Um, Alex, I think you're going to uh, to share a passage from 
from the trilogy that was particularly close to Calder's heart? Yeah, no. So, um, so John Calder managed to quote this passage to me over dinner once, um, just using the last two words, which are go on. And any <laughs> Beckettian will know what passage I'm about to read. But I'm sure you'll be happy to hear it again, because it's, it's a wonderful passage. This is the, the ending of The Unnameable. Um, which was the final part of his post-war trilogy, first published in French in 1953. Um, And the ending goes like this. I don't know, perhaps it's a dream, all a dream. That would surprise me. I'll wake in the silence and never sleep again. It will be I or dream dream again dream of a silence a dream silence full of murmurs i don't know that's all words never wake all words there's nothing else you must go on that's all i know they're going to stop i know that well i can feel it they're going to abandon me it will be the silence for a moment a good few moments or it will be mine the lasting one that didn't last that still lasts it will be i you must go on I can't go on. You must go on. I'll go on. You must say words, as long as there are any, until they find me, until they say me. Strange pain, strange sin. You must go on. Perhaps it's done already. Perhaps they have said me already. Perhaps they have carried me to the threshold of my story before the door that opens on my story. That would surprise me if it opens. It will be I. It will be the silence where I am. I don't know. I'll never know. In the silence you don't know, you must go on. I can't go on. I'll go on. It's it's an incredible piece of writing, and it's, I think, quite justifiably one of the most famous passages in, um, in 20th century literature, and particularly in modernist literature. And I, you know, I think Calder very rightly knew that he had such a great work on on his hands and of course Beckett's writing from that point forward was to become a real real cornerstone of of Calder's list um right up to the end of Beckett's life in 1989 can i just say this this passage was inspirational to John Calder in his old age it was it was something that helped him to continue to continue working and he was extremely active he was very adamant that he had to um read and speak to anyone who would listen basically you know particularly about Beckett but about his publishing in general as well um so anyway yes that was a favorite passage of his yeah I mean this this interview with Hugh Nesbitt in Vice that I referenced earlier we'll we'll send it out with the show um you know this was conducted in 2009 Calder was well into his 80s at that point and claims to have retired but actually was still traveling around an awful lot and still doing a lot of work in the shop even if he wasn't involved with publishing anymore um he says something quite interesting about beckett's novels about faber and the obscenity laws and calder says the censorship laws in those days were mad the word sex on its own couldn't be aired in public because it was considered dirty it was ridiculous and um so you got a sense of again of of this kind of principle and profit motive i think this idea that you know he's aware that you know novels that are kind of clandestine or are likely to be banned or whatever will actually will sell a lot better than ones that 
aren't a lot of the time but also it's clearly a very strong matter of principle to him to uh, well to use the title of a, of a Beckett but kick against the pricks so um yeah I mean he he was a champion of freedom of speech I mean he was he was the only person who would publish Tropic of Cancer for example in the early 60s no, no one else would touch it and he had to search relentlessly for a printer who would do this for him. Um, and he was actually expecting an obscenity trial with that book, um, but it never it never emerged, which I think he was perhaps slightly disappointed about. <laughs> um, maybe partly because of the excitement, mostly perhaps because of the sales. Um, so yeah, he was, he was told by um, the director of public prosecutions that uh, there, there wouldn't be a trial, but he kept that information to himself. So what happened when it was published was there were huge queues outside bookshops wanting to get hold of this book before it was indeed banned, but that, that never actually happened. Well, yes, in this interview with, um, with, with Hugh Nesbitt, he talks about how this was two years after the Lady Chatterley trial, uh, and of course, the infamous line about whether Lady Chatley was a book you'd want your wife or servant to read. And uh, so obscenity was fresh in people's minds. Um, regarding Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer, Calder had written to Graham Greene and Bertrand Russell asking if they were prepared to appear in court to defend it if he were prosecuted for publishing it. And they all agreed. Um, but Calder says, look, I knew that writers like Miller, like Alexander Trockey, like William S. Burroughs, he says, I knew that they were controversial, but the important thing was whether they were any good or not. Yeah, there's always this great quality to everything that he published. I mean, if if he didn't like that stuff, he wouldn't have put it out there. I mean, I I sort of feel about quarter publications the way I feel about, say, Factory Records. Um, firstly, because the quarter publications like Factory always, the books are always beautifully designed. They're very distinctive. And uh, whenever I see one in a secondhand bookshop, especially one, one of the publications from the sort of 60s or 70s, particularly their drama scripts, um, I'm always kind of drawn to it immediately. And Calder, I think, is the only publisher, past or present, that I know of, where I will take a punt on something just because it was published by Calder. And it's not always good, although it's often great, uh, but it's never boring. Yeah, I mean, there's just this real aura that comes off of these books, isn't there? I mean, it's um, kind of almost as if he created some sort of world with his publishing house. You know, you sort of feel um, that anything is permissible in that world, at least on the page, you know. Um, and that's really one of the exciting things about Calder Publishing, I think. Well, let's. I'd like to talk a bit now about um, some of our favourite uh, called a publications. Um, I mean, we've already talked about Beckett, um, but I think another thing that really became the backbone of called a publications in the early sixties, in particular, uh, and and further on, was his introduction of the Nouveau Roman, the French new novel that emerged in kind of immediate post-war France. The introduction of this to the UK in translation, authors like Alain Rob Crier, Nathalie Sarraud, Marguerite Duras. Claude Simon, Robert Pinget, uh, but also important European interwar avant-garde literary movements that he published kind of in translation. And often they were kind of compendium, compendiums, compendia, I'm not sure what the plural of that is, uh, but collections of kind of obscure short texts or fragments. I mean, there's, I think, 
six volumes he published of Antoninato's um, dramatic and cinematic texts, letters, other writings, um, which, you know, I think have continued to have an audience. Um, there was a series of Dada and Surrealist texts, including Tristan Zara's Seven Dada Manifestos. That's a wonderful book. It's a great text, isn't it? It's another one that's beautifully designed. I think it's illustrated as well. Um, but they're a joy to read. Um, as an undergraduate, uh, I was particularly inspired by the series of German Expressionist plays that he published. Calder had a real interest in drama, published some astonishingly um, interesting dramatic texts, one of my favourites is the collection of plays by the Swiss playwright Georg Kaiser. Um, I don't want to talk too much about Kaiser because we've got an episode coming next month about the um, the cultural impact of the First World War in Germany. And Kaiser will, I hope, feature fairly extensively there. But the, the Kaiser plays, particularly from morning to midnight, are kind of wonderfully strange and ecstatic sort of visceral political satires. Um, you know, he also published a lot of the absurdist dramatists that followed in the wake of people like Arto uh, and people from the Panic Movement. Uh, and the Panic Movement was a kind of 1960s uh, kind of response to surrealism and the way that surrealist art in particular had been kind of co-opted into the language of advertising, Hollywood films, that it kind of lost its like radical political edge. And so Calder published some of these authors working working around the panic movement. Um, I think he published Roland Topor. He definitely published Fernando Arabal. And um, he published, I think, one of my favourite things on Calder because nobody else would have published this at the time, I don't think, which was a volume of plays by an Argentinian playwright who went by the one-word one name of Copy. Uh, Copy was a political cartoonist and playwright. Um, and um, was kind of very, very interested in this kind of this queer literature that comes out of parts of South America in the 60s and Copy was most famous for writing a play called Ava Peron uh, in which he stipulated that a drag queen had to play the part of Ava Peron uh, a kind of nod to Jean Genet's The Maids I think um, but this very controversial play about the Peron family which sort of portrays Ava as this kind of pouting hypochondriac and uh, Juan Peron in particular is this like brutal, uncaring monster who is just waiting for Ava to die so he can kind of use use her legacy to prop up his his regime. Uh, there were riots when this was performed in Paris um, in the late 60s and it was very unpopular in Argentina. Um, but Calder published this along with three other of Copy's plays that were kind of even more experimental. I think there's one called Loretta Strong, which is a dramatic monologue for um, for one person who stands on stage naked and paints themselves green. Um, and who else was was doing that? Um, but I think Alex, like you know, we 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 share a passion for the Nouveau Roman in in particular, and and maybe we should talk a bit about some of some of those works that Calder published. Well, they vary a great deal, these different writers who were all sort of like grouped together. Um, I've somehow always thought of uh, Rob Grier's Jealousy as the sort of quintessential Nouveau Roman book, which is this um, strange little novella um, with an unnamed narrator living in a house set in the midst of a banana plantation in a country which is also unnamed, who observes um, his wife, who's just known by the letter A, followed by an ellipsis. Um, and 
much of the text of this avoids um, all recorded speech and focuses instead kind of obsessively on describing the space of this house and its surroundings. So we hear a great deal about objects, furniture, architecture, the geometry of a space. Um, And this gets right down to the numbers of bananas that are planted in each row around the house. like kind of humorlessly actually it's sort of just another detail but I it mean, sounds a lot funnier than it is right? yeah yeah um but anyway yeah that's that's a damn fine book yeah i mean i'm i'm very fond of those those calder works that were published of those uh, rob grier works that were published on calder during the 50s and 60s um you know calder also i think much as he was very interested in bringing a lot of particularly great european writing um to english speaking audiences you know he published a lot of nobel prize winners i think ivo andrich uh, heinrich Böll, uh, and various others claude simon claude simon absolutely um did natalie sarot win the nobel no. no okay um she probably should have it, well maybe um <laughs> uh but um you know as well as publishing a lot of these more kind of underground or obscure authors i mean one of the striking things about calder if you pick up any old calder paperback or hardback that you find in a second-hand shop if you open up the front and back covers you will see a list of other quarter publications and there will be often this incredible list of kind of people who are regarded as the great and good and people who are long forgotten i mean i mentioned earlier that he published a lot of theatrical texts so you know in his list you can find um not samuel beckett because Faber had the plays, but you can find people like Eugene Ionesco, Luigi Pirandello, Peter Brook, who are all still, I think, kind of fairly widely read and performed, um, kind of British experimental dramatists, uh, like, say, Stephen Burkov or Howard Barker, whose names you do still see, uh, but also people like kind of Snoo Wilson and Owen Wymark, who very little talked about now, but who they were... They? Well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, I've, I've read them because they were on Calder. Um and I found them interesting. Um, I mean, Calder was also trying to, you know, was very, I think, very interested in helping to foster um, a domestic British um, kind of quote-unquote experimental literature. Uh, we did a show on Sweet 212 um, at the beginning of the year with Jonathan Coe and Jennifer Hodgson about British experimental literature from 1940 to 1980. So I don't want to retread too much of that ground here, but he he published Rainer Heppenstall, who I wrote my book on. He published Heppenstall's 1962 novel, The Woodshed, which is a kind of interesting kind of stream of consciousness novel. Um, he said that Heppenstall took against him uh, further down the line and Calder said I never understood why and you know even kind of 40 years 30 40 years later this was clearly still a source of great pain for him and you know I had to say look maybe it's it's not that rare for an author to take against a publisher um, you know I'd read up on B.S. Johnson quite a lot and he often fell out with with his publishers um, and you know he published people like we've talked about Trocky already he published Trevor Hoyle in the 80s who is a, a very interesting kind of was kind of post-punk writer i think uh and of course he published Anne quinn who is having something of a renaissance at the moment we also covered her on on the previous show but she's very close to both of our hearts i think i think she's she's really um one of the the outstanding writers to emerge from this publishing house actually um yeah so so jenny hodgson has been um working avidly and has put out uh 
a fifth book of Anne Quinn's prose, which is wonderful, and is also working towards a biography of her as well. Um, Sorry, I should just point out here, it's... um it's a book. The fifth book means it's an addition to the four Anne Quinn novels. It's not Jenny's fifth <laughs> volume of. No, no, no. Yes, we're talking about Anne Quinn. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, no. Calder himself told me that that Anne Quinn was the best British writer that he published. Um, well, that's quite an accolade. Yeah, yeah. So um, she's well worth reading. The place to start with her work is probably Berg, her first novel, which is set in this kind of version of Brighton and is this haunted British seaside town book. Um, but I like all of them. Um, I like Passages, for example, which is very much like a kind of British version of the Nouveau Roman type novel um, in which these mysterious figures are traveling across Again, unnamed countries. Um, we don't know quite what's going on. They're perhaps um, trying to seek out the narrator's dead brother. Um, and it sort of breaks down into lists, descriptions of dreams. Sometimes a paragraph will just end and leave a white space. I mean, this is all sort of very Calder type stuff somehow, you know. it's Absolutely. Um, you know, there was, I think you know, moving beyond the, the translations of kind of 19th century and earlier classics that he published, certainly all of the contemporary literature he published, you know, had a, a passionate commitment to um, to really sort of stretching the boundaries of what a novel could be. Um, I mean, he was able to expand his list considerably after 1963 when he went into partnership with Marion Boyers. Um, and the list grew to sort of well over 200 titles, I think. It was a really, really quite extensive list by the kind of early to mid-70s. Jenny, Hodge, Jenny Hodgson has pointed out, uh, in fact, that Marion Boyers was the person responsible for publishing Anne Quinn, for picking up on her. She was also the person responsible for finding Last Exit to Brooklyn, um, which I'm sure we'll get onto in a second, because that's a major moment in we, Calder publishing. We will. I mean, the, the fact that Calder was able to publish Last Exit to Brooklyn and take on a really quite landmark obscenity trial uh, and deal with the trial against it, I think comes partly from the expanding of the enterprise. Um, Calder realize the potential of having writers read from their work i mean i guess this is kind of the early 60s and this thing happens obviously in america with the beats round about the same time possibly even slightly later um but in 1962 calder suggested a writers conference at the edinburgh festival uh, which he organized with sonia orwell um and you know this this got some of the people who are already coming into Calder's orbit, Trocky, Miller, Burroughs, but it also had Muriel Spark, it had the Dutch experimental writer uh, Harry Mulish, uh, it had Allen Ginsberg from the Beat Movement, uh, the public intellectual Malcolm Muggeridge, uh, the writer Lawrence Durrell, L.P. Hartley, and he set up a drama event the following year with Kenneth Tynan, who, um, amongst other things, was the first person to say the F word on TV. So... Um, somebody who I think shared his commitment to um, breaking taboos and challenging kind of the stupidities of of obscenity law. So there were a couple of further obscenity trials against Calder uh, in the 60s and into the 70s. One of them was against Trockey's Keynes book, but the more famous one was the... Um, 
was the trial against Hubert Selby Jr.'s novel, Last Exit to Brooklyn. Um, Alex, I'm going to let you uh, explain a bit more about that to, to the listeners. Yeah, so this was really a major moment in, in British cultural history because it was the last obscenity trial um, for a literary work that ever occurred in this country. I doubt there will be another similar one ever again. Um, but yeah, so it was it was brought on by a Tory MP who was also a Baptist lay preacher and treasurer of the Billy Graham campaign. Yeah, this was Sir Cyril Black, who That's was right. MP for Wimbledon, I think, which is exactly the kind of place that you'd expect someone to bring an obscenity trial for literature to be from. Yes. And OK, so this it went through a number of trials. This process took about two years. Um so uh, it, it, it went all the way to the Old Bailey eventually with an all-male jury. I find that shocking. Um, I mean, I think that, that that detail in itself just goes to prove what a different planet we're on in Britain these days, culturally speaking, you know. Can we just talk a bit about the novel itself and kind of what the novel was about and, um, you know, why why it got people's backs up so much? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, this is um, this is a book about New York. Um, it's quite experimental. Each chapter is sort of self-contained, narratively speaking. Um, but it covers a number of different subjects, um, all of which are interesting. Uh, perhaps the most pertinent one which led to the obscenity trial is its portrayal of the kind of gay underworld of New York at the time. There's also... Um, there's also a portrayal of... Uh, it's like a transgender sex worker features quite prominently, doesn't she? And yes, indeed. Um, yes. And I mean, you know, this this book was, was kind of going out of its way to be, to be difficult and uh, perhaps obscene, you know, not that I think it is obscene myself for sure. But, um, but yeah, there's, there's sex, there's violence, there's drug taking, there's swearing. Um, and doubtless, all of this offended the man in Wimbledon. But um, I'd like to say we endorse all of these things on Sweet 212. <laughs> uh, as do I, yes. Um, so yes, and, um, you know, I think also, something that perhaps even the people claiming this book was obscene had not really thought about was that they were they're actually offended by the the working class milieu um and also you know importantly yes the portrayal of of gay and transgender life at the time i think you know um so um yeah, what else to say about this? I mean, you see some interesting battle lines in the uh, the trial, the obscenity trial for Last Exit to Brooklyn. Um, speaking for the defence is the influential literary critic Frank Commode. Uh, speaking for the prosecution is uh, is Robert Maxwell, um, fresh from supporting the Soviet invasion, uh, sending the tanks in to crush the Prague Sprig in his native Czechoslovakia. Um, the order. The book, the the book was orig originally banned, um, but the order was only effective within the borders of Marlborough Street Court. Uh, Calder, you know, with a keen eye for the absurdity of such things, simply said that he would sell it with sell it beyond the boundaries of the like two square mile area or whatever it was. Um, and so the book was the book was found guilty, as you say, but um, he appealed it successfully in 1968. Uh, by which time the the novel had sold over um, half a million copies in the US in paperback, uh, and they probably weren't going to ban it after that. And there's been no similar trial since in the UK. 
I think I think the other important thing to say perhaps is that um, we're, we're dealing with the, the period um, when the trial began, which was was just before the partial decriminalization of homosexuality in this country. It happens during the trial. It did it? indeed. Yeah. Yes, I, I suspect that the trial probably influenced it that decision to some extent. You know. Um, Yes, and then it wasn't a wonderful bill that was put through because, you know, it, it, it put the age of consent at 21, um, whereas for the heterosexual age of consent was 16. So, you know, then there was that discrepancy which lasted for decades. But um, anyway. Yeah, I mean, that, that discrepancy stood till, till the late 90s. Um, there's another trial, though, which um, actually ended up being much more damaging to to Calder. And it wasn't to do with um, sexuality and obscenity. It was to do with, with politics. Um, you know, we've talked earlier about Calder being on, on the left pretty much all his life. And the book that he published that I think... Uh, was like maybe the was the last major trial that his books were involved in. Uh, it was a book by Eddie Milne, who was involved with the Labour Party in the northeast of England, um, called No Shining Armour, and this was published in 1976. This book was all about kind of corruption in safe Labour seats at the time, Labour councils, um, and it dealt primarily with the Paulson affair, which was a bribery scandal that was exposed in 1972. Uh, this was a scandal that, while it primarily affected the Labour Party, took in all sides of British public life. The most high-profile resignation was the Conservative Home Secretary, um, Reginald Maudlin, who'd been forced out of office during the Heath administration. It also led to the Newcastle Council leader, T. Dan Smith, who'd done a lot of influential and very interesting building work in Newcastle during the 1960s. Um, he ended up going to prison over the Paulson affair. If you want to read more about that, I recommend the chapter on Newcastle in uh, Owen Hathaway's book, Guide to the New Ruins of Great Britain. Um, but this book uh, attracted 36 libel cases, um, which, you know, even given Britain's kind of notoriously strict libel laws, is is a lot. Um, heavy damages were paid, but Calder Publications was saved by an Arts Council grant. Um, but the Arts Council grant was conditional on the publishing house becoming a, a non-profit distribution charity, which I think sort of changed the nature of its operation. And in any case, the um, the grant got discontinued in the um, early 1980s, shortly after the election of, of Margaret Thatcher. Uh, the grant was discontinued by... Um, the Arts Council chairman, who was also the BBC vice chairman, uh, a man called William Rees-Mogg, whose uh, whose son Jacob, I think, will be familiar to pretty much anybody listening to to the show. And I think there are a number of changes to British literary culture during the 1980s. Calder himself spoke about how publications tended to stop reviewing kind of quote-unquote experimental literature as much. The infrastructure that kind of supported the more innovative end of Calder's publications sort of ebbed away, really. Um, a number of crucial writers had left the scene by the end of the 1970s uh, or early 1980s. Kind of all those British kind of neo-modernist authors have died. Anne Quinn, B.S. Johnson, Rainer Heppenstall, a number of them have, have departed. Um, you know, the French Nouveau Roman has really kind of morphed into something else entirely and its key figures and not writing as much um, 
or are just not commanding the same level of interest that they used to. Um, uh, Samuel Beckett dies in 1989 and uh, the net book agreement uh, ends at the beginning of the 1990s. This was a an old agreement that books would be sold to the public at set prices and if anyone sold the books below the agreed price uh, would just no longer be supplied by their publishers. Um, this kind of had its absurdities. Bookshops used to um, damage books were exempt from the MBA, so bookshops would deliberately damage books by punching holes in one of the pages or drawing on the spines or the pages, uh, the spines of the pages with, with a marker pen. Um, and during the 1990s, this was ruled illegal. Uh, Calder actually campaigned to save the uh, the netbook agreement, but he wasn't wasn't successful. And while the the house kept publishing during the 1990s and into the early noughties, um, he more or less wound the operation down. Um, the last author he signed to Calder was Carol Morin in 2001. Um, but I think increasingly through the through the 90s, in particular, he's he's more kind of just keeping this kind of list of what were by then kind of modernist and neo-modernist classics. It's more about kind of keeping those in print than bringing new authors to to audiences. So, um, yeah, I, I, I feel that the current state in Britain um, is not wonderful in some ways. It, it, it feels to me quite difficult to find... Um, writers of the sort that he was championing in Waterstones at least I mean you know they're out there they're normally on small presses I'd like to see more on major presses and and there's this kind of like um I feel there's there's this need particularly with the, the sort of social media world that we're, we're living in now for certainties whereas like you know his work modernist work in general often thrives on uncertainties you know I've already described a couple of novels in which we don't know people's identities or locations exactly um, and so yeah no I'd really like to see people be comfortable again with uncertainty you know. Yeah, I mean, you you began working in the Calder bookshop at the end of the 2000s. Um, both of us, I think, were well into the orbit of Dorky Archive Press by that point, which was set up in 1984 in Illinois by John O'Brien. Um, they published a lot of the same authors as Calder. Um, until quite recently, they were the people who had Anne Quinn's works in print, although I know that and other stories off the back of the um, Jennifer Hodgson volume we've talked about, The Unmapped Country. Uh, I think they will be republishing some or maybe even all of Quinn's, Quinn's works. But I think through the kind of 90s and particularly the, the first decade of this century, uh, Dorky Archive was really certainly by the end of the noughties, it was, it was the only publisher I was really following. Um, and I was very interested when they published your work, The Currency of Paper, um, because I was sort of so keen to see new kind of British experimental writers like people of my generation. Um, I mean, I wonder if you'd like to maybe talk a bit about The Currency of Paper and like what, if anything, it owed to the, the authors that you were, you were reading who'd been published by, by John Calder. Well, it certainly owed a lot to the John Calder universe, I would say, um, as to the, the general avant-garde universe, not even just in literature, in, in other mediums as well. Um, so this, this is a novel um, published in 2013, which is about a counterfeiter um, who makes a great deal of secret art all over London. 
um, and does a few socialistic deeds as well. Um, yeah, there's a little bit of that in the book too. And I was trying to be as radical with form as I could be. I mean, really my great inspiration for that was Ulysses, which is a better book, let's face it. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, that was, that was a big inspiration. That had also been a big inspiration for B.S. Johnson with his first novel, um, Travelling People, and that 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 was um a major model for what i was trying to do as well um so yeah Anne quinn and bs johnson often grouped together those those were probably the two british predecessors who mattered the, the most to me with that novel yeah i mean i feel like bs johnson is is kind of the great lost calder author i don't think he published anything on calder um I might be wrong about no, that. No, John Calder actually didn't like him. No. Um, sadly, which is I a mean, real shame. Johnson obviously was unpopular with publishers for doing things like, you know, putting unbound chapters of a book in a box or cutting holes in the pages, which, you know, I when I published Trans Memoir with Verso a few years ago, my editor explicitly banned me from putting the book in a box or cutting holes in the pages um, because publishers hate that stuff because it you know, means spending an awful lot of money on a book that is not going to sell particularly well. And, um, you know, while I think um, the Beckett back catalogue and some of the Nouveau Ramon stuff helped to subsidise some of the more um, left field uh, publications that called to put out, I think some of the... Um, some of the um, experiments that Johnson made with the actual physical form of the book might well have been beyond their budget. So I think... Um the thing that, that John Calder probably didn't like about B.S. Johnson was that he was sort of getting too close to Beckett. You know, Calder was very protective of, of Beckett as somehow his property, as, you know, his man. Um, his guru, he called him, you know, at one point in, in one of his books about Beckett, actually, The Philosophy of Samuel Beckett. That's well worth reading. Um, yeah, so... So there's this extraordinary moment where Beckett won the Nobel Prize and he decided to give all of his money away. Um, you know, the enormous sums of prize money. And B.S. Johnson was one of the people who went to Paris and took some money from Beckett and Calder really didn't like that at all. Um, so there we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I said, the, the one time I, I spent an evening with, with Calder, like Samuel Beckett was very much the primary subject of of conversation which i was i was perfectly happy with um i mean i wondered if you could maybe talk a little bit more about your time working with with calder you know obviously towards the very end of his life when he was into his like mid 80s i guess um what 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 was your experience of working with him like yeah i mean i think that the thing i want to say at this juncture is that he was just such a lovely guy you know, he was a real people person. He wanted to be surrounded by the energy of these wonderful Beckett actors. Um, and so, yeah, every Thursday night for years, he was hosting these evenings where they would read out um, pieces of literature. And then um, and then his actors and me and maybe someone else would go to the Italian restaurant down the street and he would supply everyone with red wine and we'd have a wonderful time. It was just a wonderful thing to do every week. Yeah, um, I mean, I, um, you know, I, I met him doing this Happenstall book, as I've already said, and I was a very nervous, I think, 25, maybe 26 year old. I was in my mid 20s anyway, coming up from Brighton. And, you know, I really wanted Calder to 
to host this this event to launch this book on Dorky Archive Press. I mean, I would have loved for him to publish the book himself. Um, you know, he published Raina Heppenstall's monograph on the French kind of proto-surrealist author Ramon Roussel uh, back in the 60s. My book on Heppenstall kind of responded to this book on Roussel in some ways. Um, and I would have loved Calder to publish it. And a friend of mine said to me, look, you wouldn't want Calder to publish you now. He hasn't even got a computer. And sure enough, I went into the basement of the, um, the bookshop on, on the cut in Waterloo. And, you know, Calder was sat there with mountains of books and paper. And it, it looked every inch a kind of pre, pre-digital kind of analogue um, operation that he was, he was still running. I mean, like I said, he wasn't, wasn't publishing new works by that point. He talked about how, you know, in his early 80s, he couldn't take the 100-hour-plus working week anymore. Um, that, you know, he said, good literature is one way to spend your entire life working for nothing. I used to spend eight months of the year selling books all over the world. I haven't had a holiday, Christmas Day or otherwise, since 1973. Um, I but- wonder about that. <laughs> well, that's yeah. what he told Hugh, Hugh Nesbitt in 2009. But... Um, I mean, I you know I think he he really did know how to how to live as well as to work, but um, you know I was really impressed that he was still in the shop and still kind of engaging with with new literature and new writers. Initially, I found him incredibly intimidating because it was it was kind of hard not to. Uh, but you know, very quickly he kind of opened up, and I told him what I was doing. He's like, "Oh yes, Rainer Heppenstall, yes, yes." He I published him. I liked his work a lot. So we got him very well. He took against me. I had no idea why, and. Um, we couldn't work out why either, but um, you know, despite this clearly still quite painful uh, history with with this author, he was still you know very welcoming. He was very keen to do this event in the shop, um, and yeah, like you, I had a had a really wonderful evening in in the same Italian that ended in the same Italian restaurant. It was it was a great bookshop when I was there, and I'm sure it still is. I haven't been back since 2010. Well, barely. I did launch my own book there. That's the only time I've been back since then. That one evening was the time we met, in fact. Um, yeah, but uh, it was a place where like, you could hang out. There yeah. were like chairs um, on the shop floor armchairs that invited you to sit in them you know and and people would they'd sit they'd talk um there were a number of uh, famous people who came through the shop that, that was always glamorous of course like florence welsh actually used to come to these readings quite often at one point um she was she was a real fan she never talked to me but you know <laughs> she she i didn't know who she was at first she you had preserved this, your mystique alex yeah. she had this conspiratorial smile on her face <laughs> when she walked in the shop um I actually went to the shop quite recently. I kind of try and drop by the bookshop kind of once a month or so. Um, I, well, firstly, I saw a production of The Bathhouse by Vladimir Mayakovsky, Mayakovsky's final play written just before he took his own life in 1930, which is a kind of searing satire of um, of um, of the kind of emerging Stalinist bureaucracy. Um, and it was a very, very low budget production that um, Owen Hathaway, who I was with, uh, described one of the characters as being a kind of constructivist grot bags. <laughs> For those of you who, who are fans of Vladimir Markovsky and Rod Hull, um, like I am, you'll appreciate that. This all, this all sounds um, very much like the Calder bookshop I knew, though. You know, I've, I've got this sense that it's kind of still the same. I mean, I know? think my favourite thing I've bought there was quite recently. And, I, you know, the theatre section is still very... Um, very interesting and you know has a great mix of interesting new dramatists and kind of older ones and for four pounds i bought a 
1920 edition of Georg Kaiser's play From Morning to Midnight, which I think is my favourite work of literature. And that was the original translation by the English playwright Ashley Dukes um, before the quarter, the quarter translations by J.M. Ritchie in the 70s. I think we've got five minutes left here on Suite 212 on Resonance 104.4 FM. I just want to conclude the show really by talking about some of the publishers that have um, have kind of I I feel kind of continued Calder's legacy in some way. Um, I don't think Calder is replaceable. I think he's a bit like John Peel in in music. He's one of those figures that kind of they emerge in a certain time and place, and they're these kind of towering giants in their their kind of field. And um, and once they're gone, they're gone. But I think. You know, there's there's a very interesting kind of I think more pluralistic literary culture that started to emerge in the last decade. I said, I said earlier that towards the end of the 2000s, I was only really reading fiction from Dorky Archive, and Dorky are still going and they're still publishing new work, but um, I feel like their operation is maybe not as big as it was. Certainly, they're not distributing as much in the UK as they were 10 years ago. Um, but there are nonetheless like a number of um, of other interesting publishers that have emerged. I mean, we we talked a bit about social media and some of the problems with it, but I think one of the plus sides of social media and particularly the kind of literary Twitter scene that I've been kind of around when I was more active on on Twitter uh, did show that there was an audience for someone like, say, Anne Quinn, and, you know, you get lots of writers talking to each other and say, oh, yeah, no, we we all like Anne Quinn or, you know, various other kind of writers, old and new, who we were all interested in and we're interested in publishing so i think you know in the last 10 years you've seen um and other stories you've mentioned already they're publishing Anne quinn um but they're also publishing a lot of very interesting well they call themselves a publisher of innovative contemporary writing they're only publishing women this year and they've published people like emmanuel pagano uh deborah levy who i'm hoping to have on the show soon um very interesting American uh, writer Christine Schutt, Michelle T, the South African writer Ivan Vladislavich, and uh, a wonderful Argentinian writer Carlos Gamero, whose novel The Adventure of the Bus of Ava Peron is a kind of very scathing and strange and funny kind of satirical thriller. I really recommend that. Um, you have Galley Beggar Press, which was started six years ago in Norwich. Obviously had a big hit with Amar McBride's A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing, but they've also published people like Pretty Tanasia, um, Toby Litt, DJ Taylor, um, and they're particularly keen, they say, to publish authors who push the boundaries of form and language. Uh, You've got Melville House, which I think owes probably more to Olympia and Grove and New Directions, but has a similar kind of model to Calder. They publish lots of classics, especially in their Art of the Novella series. Uh, They publish neglected works by people like Walt Whitman, uh, Mikhail Bulgakov, Mina Loy, and some explosive political works as well. and also, I mean, I'd like to mention uh, Fitz Corraldo. Um This maybe owes more to like French publishing and especially in its kind of design, which recalls the kind of mid 20th century publishers like Gallimard. Um, but they've published people like Nobel Prize winners and big literary award winners like Olga Tokarczuk and Svetlana Alexievich, uh, but also people like Claire Louise Bennett, whose kind of short stories, I think really, really kind of, I think Calder would have found those very interesting operating in the kind of Bikettian tradition. We've got we've got just over one, I think we've got one or two minutes left. So um Alex, I don't know if there's anything you'd want to to say about Calder in order to to sum up. Um Oh goodness. 
Well, I mean, his typewriter was always a wonderful thing. He never actually used a computer, and he had this typewriter set up in the basement at all times, and I, I always thought that was a wonderful object. Well, I, yeah, I don't think we'll see we'll see any more publishers just with typewriters in uh, in the basement being their primary form of um, of working. But I I do feel that you know the the legacy of Calder is is very much with us, and it's very much in all of the publishers that I just mentioned. Um, you know, I mean, B.S. Johnson talked about experimental literature being like a kind of relay, and you know, most people don't even realise that there's a baton to be passed, let alone that there's a race. Um, I think Calder was someone who very much did, and I think the um, the echoes of his work will be felt for a long time to come. Anyway, that's all we've got time for today. Thank you, Alex. Thank you very much um, for having me. Please follow 